This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 25th of September, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is preventing suicide in education. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 17th radio show as a hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself for new listeners. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I've been living in the UK since 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London where I teach languages as well as humanities. I have also experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. Today I want to focus on a topic that is uh, relevant to me as an educator and also in my personal life. The podcast and discussion will both be on the topic of prevention and postvention of suicide in education. This is, I'm very conscious, not an easy subject to broach, so I'm hoping I'm going to do this in a very um, respectful and professional way. This podcast is very relevant to educators and school staff, parents, and anyone who wants to be informed and also wants to actively prevent suicides. So again, I'm repeating, there's a warning. The content is not to be listened to if you have children around because it's not addressed to children. Why have I decided to talk about this today? Well, I'm trying as a hostess and podcaster to keep my finger on the pulse of what goes on in education. And sadly, um, suicide is part of the current issues that schools have to face. I also try my best to report on what happens with um, my colleagues and in schools that are local to me. And I have a colleague who told me that in her school there has been a suicide attempt last year and um, a suicide this year after the GCSE results were published. So this is definitely something that affects my friends and colleagues and people around me. I also um, want to inform colleagues and provide essential tools so that they can act and behave professionally. Not everybody has the chance to receive a training about suicide prevention. I don't think it is offered at university for young trainee teachers. So this is the best time in the comfort of your own home to listen to a podcast if you want to know more about this difficult subject. I'm trying to fill in the gaps left by incomplete training and 
dare I say, this should be this should be part of any EQT training because this can affect anyone. And also I have direct experience of um, suicide because I have many, many loved ones and friends who passed due to suicide. So I'm very much aware, aware of the difficulties and the pain associated to these events. So first, um, if the content is difficult for you, if you feel overwhelmed, please visit the Samaritans website or call them. The number is 116-123. I repeat, 116-123 from the UK. You can check their website from anywhere in the world. And um, the Samaritans website has a lot of resources that can help you if you have a friend who needs uh, help or if you feel overwhelmed. You can also tweet me um, or uh, contact me at, at profprofmfl. There is a lot of very good quality resources on the Samaritans website, and I have been using their feedback a lot to prepare this podcast today. I just want to insist on the fact that I'm going to talk about suicide in a factual and scientific way. I am not going to describe um, any um, particular suicide or persons who were affected. So first, I always start by defining the terms I'm using. So what is suicide? I'm referring to the uh, Office for National Statistics, which has a very clear definition. So the national statistics definition of suicide includes all deaths from intentional self-harm for persons aged 10 years and over, and also deaths caused by injury or poisoning where the intent was undetermined for those aged 15 years and over. So you can see that it is quite um, a vast uh, definition. And sadly, one thing I can uh, allude to is the fact that it starts from 10 and we have cases of suicide that happen before 10. And you see that with that description of the term suicide, by the Office for National Statistics, suicide of children under 10 are not counted. So when there's a suicide, there's always an inquest in the UK, and I'm aware that it happens in the same way in France. And there is also an autopsy of uh, the victim. Most suicides require an inquest where a coroner has to investigate the death and has to prove that it is a suicide. So the amount of time it takes to hold an inquest causes a big lag in collating all the numbers and the data. It can take up to five to six months on average to have a death recorded as a suicide. Now, there are many different ways of describes, describing suicides and Suicides have been studied since the Victorian age. So I have to go back to the roots, um, and it is a French sociologist called Émile Durkheim who started studying suicides as a, as a topic. So it's called suicidology. So Émile Durkheim has described four different types of suicides. He was the first intellectual who started studying them, studying the, the cases of death resulting directly or indirectly uh, from a positive or negative act of the victim against themselves. So Durkheim identified four different types of suicide. The first one, he called it egoistic suicide. The second, altruistic suicide. The third, anomic suicide and the fourth, fatalistic suicide. So these terms 
have been used and overused over more than 150 years. Now, we have more research now, more university and peer assessed research, but he was the founder of the uh, science. So I'm going to quickly describe what his criterion mean. So according to him, the first type of suicide was the egoistical. So I'm, I'm afraid the term has aged and uh, we wouldn't use that anymore, but it means that it's the absence of social integration. So an egoistical suicide was, according to Emil Durkheim, committed by individuals who are social outcasts and see themselves as being alone or on the outside. These individuals do not find their own place in society and have problems adjusting. So that's the first type. Then he identified another one, anomic suicide, which is caused by the lack of social regulation. And by that, it means the lack of self-regulation. So a suicide that happens when a person is experiencing very high levels of stress and frustration, and it can be uh, triggered by sudden or unexpected changes in someone's life. I'll give you an example. If a young person realizes that they are pregnant and it's an unwanted pregnancy, and they might be in a society where pregnancy is shunned, um, such as in America right now, for instance, this might lead to a suicide. So this would be an anomic suicide. The third category developed by Emile Durkheim was fatalistic suicide, which is when individuals are placed under extreme rules with very high expectations set upon them, which removes them of their sense of self and individuality. So the examples we can give to illustrate that would be someone committing suicide when they are on a, in a state of slavery or when they are persecuted. Um, so for instance, we could use the example of um, someone who is in a concentration camp and chooses to take their own lives rather than suffer from the situation they're in. And uh, the last type of suicide identif identified by Emile Durkheim was the altruistic suicide. It would be when someone um, decides to sacrifice themselves to help to help others. So this was the first person who tried to study suicides and their causes and when they happen. Obviously, it is quite a dated analysis because, I mean, Emile Durkheim was the first one to, to focus on this. We have very, very different ways of um, interpreting suicides nowadays. But I just wanted you to have an idea of the origins of suicidology. Now, if we look at what goes on in the UK, we realize that in the UK and in the whole world, let's let's just start with the universal. Um, suicide is sadly and ironically a very democratic um, human experience because suicide happens in all countries, in all cultures, in all walks of life. Suicide happens in all social classes and it happens with men, women, and non-binary people, and all ages. As I said, there has been recorded um, suicides in ch the, ch the child community. So children under 10 have committed suicide, even though they're not counted in the data, and it goes to uh, old age as well. So suicide is a democratic act, and it happens to all people. It is not 
just um, happening to a certain type of person. I really insist on that. Um, saying that, when you look at the UK in particular, and I know the figures are not that different in France, uh, the people who are most at risk uh, or are most, or the people who commit suicide the most are geographically located. So there is a geographical imbalance in the UK with a regional variation. So for instance, if you look at the map of suicide cases, you see that in northeast of England, we have 14 deaths per suicide by suicide per 100,000 deaths, whereas uh, in other parts of the country, for instance, the southeast, it might be less than 10 deaths per 100,000. So a slight increase in some areas, we might uh, explain it by economical situation, but it might not be the only factor because suicide is something that is not easily explained and is usually multi-factor. Um, there is also another imbalance, not just a geographical imbalance, there is also a gender imbalance. Men remain almost three times as likely to die by suicide than women. Saying that, and it, it's, it's many, many countries follow this trend, I have to say the female suicide rate has been increasing lately in the UK since 2017. It's nowhere as high as for men, but it is on the increase. And it's also why I want to talk about it today in your company. So the Samaritans is a charity and they are um, working to prevent suicides in England and Wales. And on their website, they say that the rates of suicide have not uh, particularly increased since COVID. So that's quite interesting. I, I assumed uh, COVID had really put a strain on people's mental health and that we would notice more cases of suicide. And actually, the facts reported by the Samaritans is that it hasn't really been translated in an increase so far. So... The most uh, data collected is either by the Office for National Statistics or by the Samaritans as well. They are the only organization that is non-governmental and that tries to collate suicide statistics for the UK and the Republic of Ireland as well. So if we look at the st statistics uh, given by the ONS and um, by the Samaritans, in 2019, there were 5,691 suicides registered in England and Wales. And this, the rate per 100,000 of population is 11. So it is quite a high rate. For instance, it's much higher than the rate of death by COVID. And yet we've heard of COVID a lot in the media, but not so much ab about suicide deaths. Around three quarters of registered deaths in 2019 were among men. As I said, it is a constant trend in many countries. We are more likely to have men committing suicide than women. So um, despite having a low number of deaths, I mean, it's 14, 11 to 14 uh, per 100,000, what I want to focus on today is the rates amongst the under 25, because the under 25 are the people we are going to face in our classrooms. It's the people who go to sixth form college, it's the people who are studying at university, and these people under the age of 25 have had a suicide rate increasing in the last 10 years, 
particularly for young female, young girls aged 10 to 24. So their rates, their suicide rate has increased significantly since 2012, and it's 3.1 deaths for 100,000 girls. So this is a major issue that educators might encounter in their work life. So as I said, I had personal experience of this, but I know I am meeting people. I have a friend and a colleague whose uh, daughter had a, a friend who, who committed suicide at university last year and another colleague who had a GCSE student who committed suicide. So as an educator, you need to be aware of the risk of suicide, how to prevent it, but also how to deal with um, the other students when something like a suicide happens in a school environment. So um, this is the only uh, graphic explanation I'm going to give in the whole of the podcast. So I'm, I'm just uh, warning you, the most common method of suicide in England and Wales remains hanging, which accounts for 61% of all suicides among males and 46% for females. So we have described the, the, the different categories that Emile Durkheim described found out in the 1890s um, to describe different types of suicide. Now there's other terms we have discovered in since the late 50s and in America there is a lot of uh, uh, centers for psychiatry of children who are working on defining more terms. So another terminology I want to assist to insist on today is the term cluster. So a suicide cluster is actually a phenomenon that has been recorded in history, but it is particularly relevant for educators because it might happen in our schools, it might happen in our local community. So a cluster is an excessive number of suicides occurring in a close temporal and geographical proximity. And a suicide cluster mostly happen amongst teenagers and young adults. So it means that our students from the age of 10 all the way to university, up to 25, they might be con confronted to this in their lifetime. So a suicide cluster is usually caused by someone committing suicide and then people talking about it in the media. So the media can play a role in triggering a cluster. Newspaper coverage, social media, can increase the rate of a cluster forming. So there has been many, many studies. I'm quoting one cluster in teenagers in the USA, a retrospective study on, from 1988 to 1996 by Madeleine Gold and Marjorie Kleinman. They did this and it was published in the Lancet Psychiatry um, paper in 2014. So, we have studied this phenomenon and it has happened in different countries. So the risk when we have a suicide happening in a community of young people is that clusters happen. So you might be aware of um, another way in which social media and the media can affect the suicide rates. It's the sad case of a British teenager, um, Holly, 
uh, no, my apologies, Molly, Molly Russell. And her dad is still very vocal in uh, the newspapers because he's trying to change the law about social media. So Molly Russell was very much involved in uh, uh, Instagram and Pinterest. And she typed um, in her search, anxiety, depression, suicide and self-harm. And the content she was exposed to was exponential and overwhelming, which also led to her death by suicide. So her father is campaigning because he blames social media for exposing children to a very um, biased, negative world online. So as an educator, it is our safeguarding duty to know the impact of social media and media reporting in creating a cluster of suicides among teenagers. This is why I'm doing this podcast. I'm trying to give you a balanced, informed um, vision of the issue so that it's helpful to inform your own um, professional expertise. There is um, a term that I want to focus on, and that's to give a little bit of um, hope in this difficult discussion, and it's the Papageno effect. So uh, a very sensitive, professional, um, explanatory portrayal of suicide, which focuses on how people overcome the crisis and how people survived um, their suicidal ideation can have a protective influence. So it, it, this is what the Papageno um, effect is about. If we report how someone suffered from mental health and yet overcame it, it gives a powerful testimony and it acts as a role model that shares a positive outlook that can help teenagers. So we need to work on that Papageno effect in general, in the media and also in education. Mozart, Ludwig um, Mozart, was obviously an, an 18th century music composer who wrote the magic flute. Papageno is one of the characters. And during the opera, Papageno loses his love. And he feels like the only way out of his emotional pain is by committing suicide. But before he can follow through his suicidal ideation, three characters show him other ways to solve his problem. So the Papageno effect in, insists on the influence of positive um, reporting in mass media and um, how to prevent suicide clusters from happening. So it is our duty as educators to avoid uh, representing suicide in a negative way. And we can, by using proper uh, TV shows, books, blogs, and theater, we can have, have a beneficial aspect to avoid these clusters of suicide. Because for every one person who commits suicide, 316 people have considered it. So that's, it means that there's a lot of potential people who, who have that thought, but a good quality professional reporting builds up a strong prevention. And this is what the Papageno effect is. Now there's different types of cluster that um, psychiatrists have identified, point cluster, mass cluster, and echo cluster. Um, these are, um, depends on, on the way 
uh, a social media and media report a death by suicide. So it definitely matters the, the way we deal with students who have lost a friend due to suicide. And this is when our duty as educators comes to play. Because another aspect of suicide that most people do not realize is that suicide is democratic because it affects everyone, but it also is contagious. And this is why we have that term cluster. Because suicide can be contagious. There is an increase in suicide following some very negative media exposure. And this is the this is a vicious circle, and this is the opposite effect of the Papageno effect. We call it the weather effect, W-E-R-T-H-E-R. -E -E so I give you an example. It's been studied. Uh, it appears in statistics and data. For example, if you think of famous celebrities who were at the height of their fame and very successful and very much loved by many, many fans worldwide, when, when that when one of those celebrities commits suicide, there is a ripple effect and it can be on the worldwide um, situation. So I'll give you two famous uh, names. There is the suicide of Kurt Cobain in the 90s and also the suicide of Robin Williams in 2014. And after the deaths of these two very famous musicians and comedians, there has been worldwide other suicides committed by people who admired them. Now, uh, after Robin Williams' suicide, there were 1,841 more suicide deaths in the US compared to a similar time period the previous year. So that is a lot. All these people have been exposed to this reporting in the media, and it was not good quality reporting, which created a ripple effect. So bad media coverage of suicide with maybe a very graphic or um, almost obscene voyeuristic outlook can lead to people committing suicide as well. So the weather effect comes from the sorrows of Jung Weather, which is um, a book written by Goethe, a German, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, a German writer. This is um, an Enlightenment author from 1774, so that dates from um, before the, the French Revolution. Um, the following the publication of the novel, there was a lot of imitation suicide amongst young men in Germany, Denmark and Italy. And that's why we call it the weather effect, named after the sorrows of young weather. So you can see how there is a, a negative influence coming from um, literature, coming from um, obviously music when we have a famous musician, but also comedy because or acting because Robin Williams was an actor. So this is the opposite. We have the Papageno effect, which is good quality reporting and prevention. And then we have the weather effect, which is um, promoting almost the act. Now, it is a Sunday, which is a quite ironic uh, day to talk about such a difficult issue. Have you heard of the Gloomy Sunday song? Well, it's it might be an urban legend, but it's dates from a Hungarian um, 
It, it comes from a Hungarian writer, Rudy Spitzer, who in 1933 wrote a very sad song entitled Gloomy Sunday. So this song triggered a ripple effect and a cluster of uh, suicides. And in 1941, a version recorded by Billie Holiday was banned by the BBC because they wanted to avoid upsetting the public and they wanted to avoid that ripple effect and that imitation uh, pattern. So uh, even the, the um, Billie Holiday couldn't be played singing that song on the radio. The instrumental versions were allowed though. It was the lyrics which were, which were deemed to be too effective, if effective and effective. So um, this is definitely something we need to be aware of as educators. We need to be very aware of what our students are listening to. Um, this might be a safeguarding issue. If you notice that one student is listening to very gloomy music, you might see it as something to pay attention to. Because in 1984, there was uh, Ozzy Osbourne who was taken to court, for instance, because um, there was a teen who was listening to his song, Suicide Solution, and uh, th that teen uh, committed suicide. So it still is something we need to be aware, aware of, that cluster effect, that contagion effect coming from um, the reporting or the use of suicide as a theme in literature, in music, in songwriting, and in movies. So I did mention that suicide was democratic, it is contagious, and it is also um, now very much in the open because social media is everywhere. In 1941, the BBC could ban um, Gloomy, Gloomy Sunday's version by Billie Holiday. Nowadays, we can't always control what our children are exposed to. So it is very important to be aware of three types of uh, negative influence on our teenagers. There is the impact of exposure uh, from suicidal peers. So if a child commits suicide in a school, this will affect the whole school community, the staff, and all the children. So this is one of the first causes of a cluster creation. Then there's the media, and the media love a tragic story. So I've I'd, I've heard of schools where there has been a suicide, and a particular one that was very out of the ordinary. And then there were media. A me, there was a media storm. There were there journalists chasing students, trying to interview them. This is the worst we can do to protect our children. Um, so we need to have a sort of plan. And I know it's not something people want to think about, and that's why I'm doing this podcast. No one in education wants to think, what shall I do if one of my students dies of suicide? I know this is too unpleasant, this is too taboo, nobody wants to think about it. But I think it is our duty as SLT, Senior Leadership Team, to have a plan in place just in case. And this could also be used in case of, um, we call it a school intrusion, which I hope is never going to happen in the UK, happens almost daily in the US, but the schools have to have a plan in place to support the community if there is uh, a death in the community and a death by suicide brings its own challenges, which are different from the sorts of things the US schools are confronted with, with mass shooting or 
So we need to have a plan in place to be able to support our staff and our students. Because it has been studied, and this is a consistent finding across several um, analysis, when there's an exposure to school friend attempted or completed suicide, it can lead to more suicides in the next following two years. So it, it is actually quite strange to, to figure this. After one suicide, suicide happens in a community, over the next two years, we might be at risk of having another one. So prevention matters. And this is why you're listening to this podcast and this is why I'm doing it, because we need to start a conversation and be prepared. I did mention the evidence of media guidelines effectiveness. So now I think most people are aware of the nefarious aspect of some social media on young people. But as I explained, schools cannot protect their students outside the gate. We can't stop journalists from trying to reach the students and trying to interview them. What we can do is inform parents as well as the community, community and the staff that the reporting of suicide, if it's done in a negative way, can create a ripple effect and a cluster. It has been studied, I'll give you an example, in the Vienna subway system in the 1980s all the way to the 1990s. There is a lot of suicide in the subway in Austria until media guidelines change. And this went into effect in 1987. And after that date, the number of suicide in the Vienna subway system decreased drastically. So when medias are controlled with a very positive approach to reporting of suicides, it does prevent cluster formation. If you want to know more about the research and the evidence concerning media reporting, the Samaritans website has a wealth of resources and I advise anyone who works in information, broadcasting, reporting and education to have a look at it because sensational, excessive reporting leads to contagious, contagion and clusters. We need to protect our students and some tabloids are extremely guilty of uh, the weather effect when they um, propagate the idea. Now, young people are more susceptible to suicide contagion. So when covering the death of a young person, it is really, really important to not use photograph, not use emotive or romanticized language, nothing sensational. It has to be factual, it has to be, um, it has to focus on the positive aspect and what can be done to prevent suicide. And it needs to give clear and direct references to resources and charities that support people who are struggling with their mental health. The, now, as a teacher, what can you do to prevent the um, act before? someone ends up committing an act. What can we do before that happens? We have a lot of research done by psychiatrists and um, that's the beauty of psychiatrists. That's what can be done in America, can be transferred to another country. 
there's a lot of transferable skills there. So what we notice is that the students who already have a very stressful life with difficult family homes and um, maybe already who have already experienced tragedies, they're more likely to um, lack a coping mechanism to reach out or to deal with these suicidal ideations. So vulnerable children, children who already have a history of mental illness and children who have a very stressful life condition um, can need extra help and extra support. So we know our students and every teacher has a better quality of teaching if they have a good bond and, and an understanding of who they teach. So know your students and always keep attention to their general well-being. I'll give you an example. There is a study in the New York State, over 12 schools, where there has been a suicide amongst the students. So the students who had uh, negative life events, so it might be a death in a family or um, acrimonious divorce or uh, violence, domestic violence or extreme poverty, these students were more at risk of having a suicidal behavior and suffering from depression. So what is interesting is that students who are friends with the disease don't usually um, follow through these steps, but it might be someone who's not in the inner circle of friendship. So it's not gonna be the closest friends who are gonna um, create a cluster effect or or a do um, imitation suicide, but it might be some other students who knew of the student and um, who are at greatest risk. But whatever the situation, what these schools need to have is a postvention scheme, and we'll talk more about postvention in a minute. So why are we so reluctant to talk about the issue of suicide in education? Well, it's because suicide is about death. And in Western societies, we think that talking about death brings bad luck or that it's taboo. So we avoid talking about it. And also the way we deal with death is that it's very medicalized. So, so most people who are dying die in hospitals. They are not always seen by their uh, neighbors or so we we push death to the side and we try not to think about it so because suicide deals with death and suicide is one of the hardest death to mourn um, because the person you are regretting the person who passed actively chose to bring on their own death so because suicide is so painful and difficult to comprehend we just avoid talking about it now, there is also the risk of contagion, and I did explain before, suicide is democratic and contagious if we do not put prevention in place. So people don't want to talk about it because they know that if we talk about it in a negative way, sensational, um, almost obscene way, graphic way, or um, in a very um, disrespectful way or to make money in a sleazy way, we know that it will spread. So because of these two, a uh, combination of a taboo and then a fear of uh, doing more damage, we just don't talk about it. And because we don't talk about it, we don't explain it. 
So it becomes something that is happening to 14 people per 100,000 deaths, but we ignore it. And this is why I'm trying to talk about it today. I want to do more prevention. I want people to have knowledge and I want to be, people to behave professionally. And if you start talking about suicide in a professional, clear, honest way, you're going to realize that most people have experienced a loss by suicide in their lives. I was surprised when I went through mourning suicide in my uh, in my close circle that every time I mentioned it, people would tell me, oh, my aunt or my friend or my partner or my daughter or someone they knew had committed suicide. So it's way more common than we think. Now, who are the people at risk? Because if you're an educator, you want to be able to spot the signs in order to prevent um, suicide. Well, there are lists online of people who might show symptoms of suicidal ideation or suicidal behavior. I'll give them to you very briefly. Um, having attempted suicide before, um, feeling hopeless, having a very difficult life experience, very stressful life event, having money problem, love problems, um, having an addiction, substance abuse problem, having a psychiatric disorder, having a family with lots of psychiatric and mental disorders in their history, having a medical condition linked to per terminal illness and depression, and also being LGBTQ with an unsupportive family. Because when you feel stressed and when you feel um, attacked and isolated, you, you are more at risk of committing suicide. So anyone who is from a minority in a hostile environment, and that could be something um, about your ethnicity, um, you're more at risk. So that's the easy signs to spot. What I'm going to say is that the tricky part about suicide prevention and what I've experienced in my own personal life is that people who are going to commit suicide don't always look like they are suffering. And this is when prevention is difficult. It might be someone who's looking sunny and happy and joyful, who cracks jokes all the time. Sometimes we say, oh, he was the soul and life of the party. And this is when suicide prevention is really hard because it's not obvious. And every person who's led to commit suicide has very deep reasons to do so. And they're all different. Now, in teenagers and children, you need to look out for students who have already a psychiatric disorder, loss of family members, a history of physical or sexual abuse, alcohol or drug problem, physical or medical issues, and something very relevant to educators, if you have students who are victim of bullying, because bullying can be a trigger to commit suicide. And also, if you're very unsure of who you are sexually, about your gender or your orientation, it might be a, a trigger. And then the cluster issue, the contagious aspect of suicide, if you read or hear an account of suicide by a peer who died by suicide, you're more at risk. So these are the profiles we need to look out for in our teenagers and students. And maybe mostly in America, more than in the UK, we also need as educators to be trained to deal with 
um, violence as a part of the society and culture. Because in America, particularly, they have a murder-suicide risk. Uh, a murder-suicide is when someone is planning to commit suicide, but also to take others with them in their final act. So this is uh, Columbine uh, and these uh, horrible events in America. So now I've given you enough descriptions of the people who are at risk. I did mention the adult side, side of um, the profiles of people who might commit suicide. And I also described what a teenager who is at risk could uh, look like. But I really want to insist on the fact that classification of suicide profile is not an easy thing to do because, you know, humans are magical beings and they're all very different and unique. So I would say the hardest thing is when you assume that someone is absolutely fine because that's when the suicide is even more shocking. It's not always the people who look like they're having difficulties who go on to committing suicide. Now, I have read a lot about it for personal reason, as I explained, but I also think that there's a new classification that's needed because the Emile Durkheim classification dates from the 1890s. We have a lot of uh, American psychiatry research papers published, but I think we also need a clear difference in uh, the types of suicide we might face. So I would say the main difference that people focus on uh, for a good or bad reason, is if a suicide was planned or opportunistic. Does it make a difference? I'm not sure. If it's planned, we might have more ways to prevent it. If it's opportunistic, it feels like a sudden urge and it seems even harder to prevent. Now, I would say there's obviously planned suicide, opportunistic, but there's also, I would call it, and I know it's controversial, so you might want to um, tweet about it if you if you want to say something about it. Um, I want to add the responsible suicide as um, I mean the euthanasia clinic type of suicide. We have more and more people who are facing terminal illness and want to keep control of their life and how their health is going to deteriorate. So they might go to Switzerland or Belgium and um, ask for help to commit suicide medically with a panel of doctors. So I would call that the responsible suicide in the sense that it involves others, it's done in the open. And because I mourned people who committed suicide, I know how hard it is to make sense of that act because you're faced with someone's pain and it's too late to help. Whereas I think when someone chooses to go to a euthanasia clinic, they usually need their their loved ones to be around them and accompany them. And I think this is when it becomes a beautiful act of community and sharing, and we can actually be there to help. So I'm, I'm very much interested in what Jean-Luc Godard did in the, in the last couple of weeks, because he decided to, to follow uh, the route of the euthanasia clinic. And um, I think it's, it's a, a very interesting choice to make at, at someone's end of life. Now, another classification, you might say stress suicide, I would say when people are under immense stress. And I think this is one type of suicide that educators might face. I think I suspect this is what happened to that um, GCSE student who um, committed suicide after hearing his results. Um, 
we underestimate the pressures that we put on our children's lives in our modern societies, whether it's due to social media, exam pressure, or, or just competitiveness. We are always putting children in a state where they have to compete with one another. And this creates immense stress. There is also the sacrifice. Uh, suicide um, may, might happen when someone wants to help its nation fight in combat. And there's also the societal suicide. If you think of the Japanese kamikaze who were hurtling their plane against uh, American boats, it's almost following a code of honor that's imposed by their own society. So there might be lots and lots of reasons why someone commits suicide. But whatever the type of suicide, I think we need to be aware that we can prevent them. So there is also the trauma uh, response suicide. I would say it's when someone has suffered so much that they, they just have no more resources to fight back. And also you can identify a last type of suicide in my view, the political protest type of suicide. When you have um, Buddhist monks, for instance, who were um, protesting against the invasion of Tibet by China and set themselves in, on fire. So you do have many, many, many reasons why people commit suicide and we can't explain them all, but we have to, to look at them with an open mind and try and find um, ways to prevent them when it's for the sake of the individual except in the case of the euthanasia, the responsible suicide, where this is done to alleviate uh, an end of life that is too difficult to deal with due to health issues. So I've been talking about how to make sure we realize who is more at risk. And I want to give more tools to teachers to think about their practice and what they can put in place before any suicide happens. And sadly, in case one has happened in the school community. But before that, I'm going to leave you with the news and uh, hoping we can have a big breath and recoup afterwards. Thank you. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers, including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger, and many more. There'll be talks, workshops, and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch, and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity, EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc. Venues, St. Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this 
is Teachers Talk Radio News. ITV News reports on the three dads walking as the men continue their 600 mile walk across the UK and Northern Ireland. Andy Airy from Cumbria, Mike Palmer from Greater Manchester and Tim Owen from Norfolk came together after their daughters took their own lives. This challenge is their second walking challenge and their key aim is to get suicide prevention on the national curriculum. Mike Palmer believes that many young people aren't really equipped with the life skills to keep them safe in later life. Their 300 mile challenge last year saw them raise almost a million pounds for suicide prevention charity Papyrus. But this time they're walking to all four UK parliaments to secure support for changes to school curriculums. Former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has attended an event in Manchester which focused on some of the hardships faced by students in higher education. He spoke at the Right to Clothing campaign launch at University of Manchester and urged the government not to forget students in the cost of living crisis. The campaign itself aims to raise awareness of clothing deprivation and provide clothing directly to those in need. Dr Luke Graham, a University of Manchester academic, said Whilst other deprivations are highly publicised and visible in the UK public consciousness, the same is not true of clothing deprivation. Further details of the campaign can be found on the Right to Clothing campaign website. Between the 20th of September and the 2nd of October, many schools will recognise British Food Fortnight with a series of events. Warwickshire County Council published details of events on offer in its schools, including chances for parents and families to learn more about where food comes from, as well as enjoying Britain's best seasonal and locally sourced products. The project aims to get children excited about food produced regionally and nationally. The event has been organised by Love British Food and has been going for 20 years. This year, the event also hopes to raise awareness of the benefits of short supply chains in reducing environmental impact as well as cost. The TES magazine features an article on Gaelic education in Scotland. With many families now wanting their children to learn in Gaelic, the article explores whether enough has been done to harness that enthusiasm. Half of Scottish councils offer primary Gaelic medium education, almost 40 years after the first primary unit was established in 1985. Figures also show that over 3,500 primary pupils are taught through the medium of Gaelic and that many others are drawn to the language. Data from Duolingo, a language learning app, suggests that by February 2022, over a million people had accessed the Gaelic course. The full article is available in the TES magazine. Finally, the former governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, Lamido Sanusi, has made a passionate call for scaling up girls' education in sub-Saharan Africa. He spoke at a three-day Transforming Education Summit. He pointed out that providing girls with education and the opportunity to earn income was a single silver bullet to improve socio-economic issues and make progress towards breaking the cycle of illiteracy and poverty. He stated his regret that there is currently a deficit of 69 million teachers globally and added that many of those at work in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa and Southern Asia lack basic qualifications and training. Sanusi believes teachers are a powerful force, but they could not deliver quality education without training. He launched a project in 2020 with the aim of supporting ordinary teachers in developing their skills, according to a report on the This Day website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. 
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I was asked in a tweet, why does switching off and on again work? The answer is actually incredibly simple. Kind of. Every program running on your computer or device needs to load into main memory, what we know as RAM, in order to be fetched, decoded and executed by the processor. Now before you fall asleep, what that means is as you open and run multiple applications, more and more data is having to be processed. Different programs running will have different priorities, meaning some are more important than others. Things like typing on the keyboard, for example, will stop anything else and be processed first because you, the user, will expect to see a character appear on the screen. And if you don't, well, you'll press the key again and then press it again harder and suddenly get a splurge of gibberish on your screen that you'll then have to deal with. Sometimes programs don't behave, like the person in rush hour who indicates right at a roundabout then slingshots for a left turn. They get ahead of the queue, but at the cost of the other drivers waiting properly. What I'm trying to say is lots of apps are running and there's lots of queues waiting to be processed. So switching off and on again is like resetting everything, clearing the memory and allowing the programs you need to run more efficiently. Now my question to you is, do you leave your laptop on? so it's ready in the morning. Is it running slower than others? Why not try a power cycle? You know, switch it off and on again. TT Radio 2022. Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you, dear listeners. Um, I hope we had a bit of time to just uh, have a big breath. And uh, now we are ready to finish our conversation on this difficult topic. So I just wanted to let you know there's some great resources already made on many websites. I would recommend the Anna Freud National Center for Children and Families. They have um, descriptions of what are the signs to look out for in your student cohort. Uh, remember vulnerable children who already have a history of mental ill health, who experience abuse or who are bullied or who are being a bully, and uh, people with low self-worth and complex family issues, they are more at risk. So definitely always keep an eye on your students who are already vulnerable, but remember that anyone from any walks of life, any age, any social background, any color, any sexual orientation can have suicidal ideation or suffer from um, depression. So we all need to be aware so that we can offer help. Now there's also other types of help. Um, I would say it's very important to always have already printed, maybe at a reach in the pastoral office or in any teacher's office. Uh, one of the quizzes you can give to students, there is the ASK suicide screening questions, ASK written A-S-Q. You can find it on the National Institute of Mental Health. Easy to print, A4 paper, just one side, with a few questions to allow any student who's feeling a bit down and is sharing their concerns with you to express their troubles in a very open, clear, simple way. And then according to the answers, so if they answer yes to any of the above questions, there's four questions, then you are encouraged to contact um, any charity in, in the UK, the Samaritans, um, in France, I know it's SOS suicide. So there's different charities you can contact or your GP. 
At the same time, as an educator, you need to contact your safeguarding officer and the form tutor to just inform any colleague who has an, a duty of care that this student has answered your ask ASQ quiz and is having difficulties. So it's important to start in the prevention way before something happens. The NHS, nhs.uk has a great uh, quiz on suicidal ideation. So let's not um, just panic with the word suicidal ideation. Many people have had thoughts of Oh, I've had enough. Life is hard. I think we've all been there, particularly uh, in the context of a pandemic and and food prices going up and fear of how to pay for the bills that we have. But suicidal ideation is specific because it's relentless and it comes constantly to the point that you can't function. So there is definitely lots of resources out there. And I would advise you to use these websites if you have students who are struggling now i'm talking about students but we need to be aware that suicide is also an adult issue as we said there's no age because suicide is a democratic issue so the symptoms of suicidal adults are a bit different um in my experience a lot of people who are gonna commit suicide do talk about thinking about committing suicide they also talk about the means to commit suicide so if we are always proactive whenever we hear someone talking about it we need to take it seriously we shouldn't just brush it in the cut under the carpet and think oh it's, it's just an exaggeration or a joke because this is an alarm bell ringing another personal aspect of suicide prevention that i didn't realize could have helped is when people start giving a, a lot of their belongings away when they don't really have a logical explanation they're not moving house they're not having a spring clean out of their house if people give their personal precious belongings it might be because they are planning to go on to commit suicide and also saying goodbye in a particularly particularly but in a particular way as if they were not going to see you again these are alarm bells changing normal routine lack of sleep people who are uh, suffering from suicidal ideation and depression are struggling with sleep sleep is when we can recover when we have a mental um, health issue and if we can't sleep we are in crisis so these can apply to your colleagues remember teacher burnout is something we hear about it can lead to dramatic circumstances so we need to be proactive the first steps of prevention are if you feel unwell and overwhelmed talk to a trusted friend or an adult call a suicide hotline call emergency service emergency services if it's a matter of emergency make an appointment with your gp or nurse and if you're religious you might consider contacting a minister or a spiritual leader. Now, in schools, we have a whole system with the safeguarding officer and uh, the LADO and the head teachers. But we did mention postvention. So what is postvention? Postvention is when a suicide has happened in a community. And our aim is to make sure everybody has the tools to go through grief and I remind you that mourning someone 
who, who died by suicide is one of the hardest deaths to mourn because there's lots of unresolved issues when someone commits suicide. So our first duty when something like a suicide happens is to prevent other suicides from happening due to contagion. We need to avoid clusters in the community. So having an assembly ready um, might be something to consider as staff working in schools, a very professionally written assembly where we talk about prevention, but also an assembly for postvention. So in prevention mode, we need positive survival stories. So people who are honest and clear about their mental health issues and say they considered committing suicide, but they did not because they chose other solutions, insist on these solutions. These are very powerful. This is the Papageno effect. We give out solutions that positively influence. It's like a virtuous circle. It prevents suicide. Now there's great initiatives. Papyrus is a charity and uh, there's lots of actors and theater directors work with this charity, Papyrus, P-I-P-Y-R-U-S, and they propose a show. Uh, Ramon Eyre is a performer, director and artistic director of the Ephemeral Ensemble, and he collaborates with Papyrus and they do shows for students and young people to give them that positive awareness of suicide prevention. There's lots of resources on the Papyrus website. Now, what I'm doing today is talking about a very personal, deeply aff affecting issue, and I'm doing it, and it's not a very pleasant task, but I think it's really important because we need to talk about death and dying in Europe. This is still a societal taboo, and it shouldn't, because it might lead to more deaths by suicide, because we tiptoe around the issue. So I refer to a very important book in the awareness of the importance of talking about death, and it is The Five Stages of Dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It's its 50th anniversary of publication, so this is not a new book, but it's a classic book, and I read it when I was mourning and it was really helpful. You can check the website www.ekrfoundation.org, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She identifi identified the five stages of dying. So for someone who goes through death, there is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And it's the same for people who are mourning someone who passed. We all go through these stages at different times. Some might stay stuck on anger a lot. Some skip one or just experience it for a day or an hour. We all go through a different cycle, but we all experience these strong emotions. And what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did is she listened to people who were dying. She didn't put them in a room and forget about them in a hospital. She went to them and she heard them. And the very act of listening delivered illness and dying from the realm of disease and brought it to the realm of lived experience. So we need to hear about other people's experience. It's not so much five stages, but it's five patterns of emotion. 
So when you have a student who's been through mourning, when a student loses a parent, you need to remain neutral and you need to talk to them with very honest terms. If it's a if it's um, lost by suicide, it's going to be even harder to comprehend, particularly for primary school children. So my advice is always do not lie. Do not lie to children, even if you think it helps. What you need to do is explain the truth with age-appropriate language. It sounds easy to say. What does it sound like? Well, it's, for instance, explaining to the children that, um, let's say, uh, an uncle committed suicide. So it would be saying, your uncle was struggling with his mental health and he was feeling really sad and unhappy and he was feeling like that every day, day after day and he became really overwhelmed and then he got more and more unhappy and he couldn't see any other way to stop this horrible feeling he was experiencing. And there, there would have been other possible solutions to help him but maybe he couldn't find them because it was so hard and so painful. And that bad feeling that some big people call depression, it stopped him from keeping on being alive and he, he had to stop and then he died and he, he committed suicide. And this is what you should say to a primary school age child who's going through mourning of suicide because they need to know the truth. If we hide the truth to children, they will feel more and it will hurt them. So choose your words. Do not say he passed. Do not say he, he went on uh, the beyond. Try and be clear without being graphic. Just say he committed suicide. He put an end to his life. Remain neutral. Don't be graphic. You don't have to explain exactly how it happened. Um, explain in simple terms and answer all questions that the child is asking you. But if you don't know the answer, tell the child, I'm not sure. I'm going to find out or I'm going to do some research to know more. You don't have to rush giving an answer. But what you can't do is lie because it's hurtful. Don't make it up. Just be clear and simple. It is important to guide our children through the mourning process. And lying is hurtful and nefarious, I would say. Now, if you need more help, if, if you need to look at case studies because you're struggling, in your personal life or at school to help the students who are going through such an experience. And, and trust me, it is a very painful experience. You can access lots of resources on Winston, Winston's Wish. So www.winstonswish.org. It's a bereavement charity supporting children who are grieving. It's not just about suicide, it's about loss. But remember that loss by suicide is really almost impossible to fathom. So to deal with postvention when a suicide has happened in your school or in your community, you need to enhance communication, connectedness, and you need to promote media and good practice in the media. You need to provide resources for help, use charity, uh, contact online crisis, ask for a psychologist to come into the school. This is essential. 
we need to shape our community members so that they all come together and support each other. There is nothing worse than just brushing a horrible event like a suicide under the carpet and moving on and pretending grief doesn't doesn't happen. Everybody's affected by suicide because it's almost impossible to understand. And it is why we need to all share this ordeal together. So senior leadership team and pastoral have to have a leaflet or a template ready at any case if there's a death in the school community. But having a special one for suicide is important. It might be a teacher who commits suicide. It might be a child, a student or a caretaker, but we need to have a plan in place as postvention. We need to have a risk assessment and a plan of action ready. And because we have a duty of care for our staff and vulnerable students. So what we want is to tip the scale so that the Papageno effect is the most common one. And we don't have the Verta effect, the one where we spread suicide. We want to spread a positive vision of it where we have survival stories of how people overcame their difficulties and did not choose that path. I want to talk about staff suicide and staff prevention now because I'm obviously really, really into protecting children, but I also want to protect staff and children and, and, and teachers. So sadly, on the Saturday, the 21st of September 2019, a French head teacher in a French nursery school in Pantin near Paris, Christine Renon, Christine Renon, committed suicide at her workplace. And this has been sensationalized and in social media and in the in in the newspapers and in the press, it was all over the press because she had sent her suicide notes to members of the Department for Education in France, where she blamed her work pressures and her working conditions. And she said this is the reason why she took her own life. So it almost looks like she had a stress suicide and also a political protest suicide. Her letter was received on the day she died, so she definitely planned her suicide as well. And she said it was loneliness, stress, and the overburning, overburdening accumulation of administrative tasks that she couldn't cope with. It was a teacher burnout, but it became a national tragedy. And I really want to people for people to be aware that staff well-being is important just as much as children well-being and we need to prevent suicide from staff and for that we need to prevent burnout from happening and for that we need to make sure we have good working conditions and Christine Renon was complaining she didn't get the support she needed from her hierarchy her colleagues didn't expect her death, it was a shock to everybody because they described her as a hyper-invested, sunny, um, very shining, lovely lady. But she reached a, a point where she, she didn't have any more resources to cope. So we want to avoid this. 
it's it's a wake-up call when someone goes to that extreme to show how difficult their working life condition is so obviously in the french press there has been a sense sensation um caused by her death and this is exactly what we mean by postvention we should avoid using someone's suicide in the press in a negative way instead we should try and minimize the likelihood of contagion we should encourage stories of resilience we should encourage people to volunteer at a crisis center and we should encourage people to participate in suicide prevention you heard it during the news there are hikes with money collected to support charities such as papyrus or winston's wish this is how we prevent suicide from happening as i said and explained there are many causes for suicide and many suicides are actually their factors are different and there's in one suicide we might have a stress factor we might have a political protest factor we might have a trauma-led factor so it is a very deeply human experience but we need to work to reduce the number of young people under 25 who are um, suffering so informing yourself i would advise you to check this other website called deathcafe.com deathcafe.com is a very strange concept but i can assure you that if you put the idea of the taboo to the side if you come with an open mind you will see its beneficial aspect a death cafe is a place where you go to meet people to eat a cake to drink a cup of tea or coffee and to talk about death what does it mean talking about death it means that some people are coming just to have a chat about their vision of death um, what comes after death other people come to share their pain because they are deeply in mourning and they are struggling and they just want to reach out and and share the burden of their mourning other people just come out of curiosity because they think it's quirky and they want to know more. And other people are professionals. They might work in the funeral um, services or they might be a celebrant helping people to organize funerals. A death cafe is a good place to start your journey into acceptance. Death is gonna come to us all. We need to be aware of it. We need to make sure we prevent unnecessary death we need to make sure we reduce the number of suicides but we also need to question our views on euthanasia for instance why is it legal in some countries why is it not what are our thoughts about it these are things that the death cafe can bring to you if you can check the website there's many occasions to visit a death cafe all over the world i hear it's now a worldwide event so prevention strategies uh there's lots of charities as i said being someone who can listen is the first step being non-judgmental uh, not trying to cheer people up you don't have to say anything if someone comes and shares their pain you need to just sit down and listen you don't even need to say anything afterwards the only thing you could say if you feel like you need to fill the silence is I hear you, I'm hearing you, and I'm here. That's it. You don't need to do more than that 
when someone discloses their suicidal ideation. The next step is to offer help to contact a GP or to call the Samaritans. And this is about it. You, you cannot protect someone who's got suicidal ideation by being with them 24 hours. This is not physically possible. So don't put that burden upon yourself if you're trying to help because you might fail and you might feel guilty. What you can do is offer your help and guidance and that's it. But it's the best you can do. As I said, there's lots of online resources. I used to prepare this podcast, Columbia University Department of Psychiatry papers. There is a, a PowerPoint on suicide contagion among adolescents by Madeline Gold, Irving Phillips at um, the University of Columbia. You can find it online. It was published in 2020. It's very useful to see how contagious suicide can be and how we can prevent it from being contagious. There is also a hashtag class of 2018, which is part of the Papyrus um, charity. So Harry Biggs Davison was a former head teacher, an educator, and he lost his son Patrick to suicide in 2015. And since then, he's been trying to raise awareness of how many suicides are committed every year in our student community and that it is our duty to, to stop it because we care about our students and we want to offer other solutions. So please check out hashtag class of 2018 on Twitter and um, Papyrus, the charity. There is a phone number, the Hope Line UK. I apologize for those who are uh, outside the UK. I'm sure if you um, type suicide prevention on Google search or on any search, uh, engine, you will find your national number. So for Hope Line UK, it is 0800-068-4141. I repeat, 0800-068-4141. So you will get a lot of help on these, um, from these charities. Now, as I said, we need to develop the postvention plan before a suicide occurs because you don't have time when you're hit by a tragedy in your local school to devise an assembly and to um, send out a letter to parents and to give out leaflets to students. You, you won't have time. So you need to have it beforehand. You need to collate a very professional, clear, honest, positive PowerPoint in order to share with the students and you need to make sure that you have access to some psychological support. Prevention is always the best. Postvention, I see it as a prevention from a cluster. So even if there has been a loss and a loss is already too much, we can prevent other losses. Remember the first two years are crucial amongst teenagers because there's that imitation suicide uh, risk. So a more efficacious avenue to protect our young people's well-being remains collective public projects to produce protective structural changes. What I mean by that is to prevent some teachers from committing the irreparable, like uh, the late Christine Renon, we need to make sure working life conditions are 
supportive of well-being. We need to make sure our teachers are happy to go to work, our students are happy to go to work, and our head teachers and SLT are not overburdened under too many tasks that just exposes them to a high risk of suicide. Schools are always a good place to start anything when we want to change in society because children learn so much quicker than adults and ch children are more flexible. They want to embrace the future. So because we don't want to have 14 deaths per 100,000 in the UK due to suicide, we need to start at school. We need to have a conversation about what death is. We need to make it less taboo. We need to explain why people might commit suicide and show all the solutions we need to use instead of going that far to do something that can't be undone. And school's always a good place to start. So I hope this was useful for you as an educator and as a human being. And I'm hoping you will feel empowered to talk about it at school with other staff members so that you ensure there is something in place in the case in case there is a suicide happening in your community it might not even be in your community it might be if someone famous who is a role model to your students commits suicide as you know um, it can have a nefarious impact on worldwide um, so we need to have a plan because people who have a plan are prepared and they can be more proactive so thank you so much do not hesitate to contact me on twitter if you want to share or if you want to ask questions or if you want to just express your views um, at prof prof mfl i'm sorry the subject was really difficult today but i'm hoping it was useful have a lovely week and i look forward to talking about a very much more light subject next sunday thank you thank you dear listeners This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.